Our next panelist is uh, someone whose work I first encountered, golly, 20 years ago, um, when I was working on a biography of Senator Joseph McCarthy, my second book. And at the time, one of the big issues that uh, hovered over the discussion, there are many issues that hover over Joseph McCarthy's career, controversies, but one of them was the discussion about U.S. policy with regard to China and the Chinese Civil War. Um, and one of the books that I found uh, absolutely uh, fundamental to getting a firm grasp of what had taken place there um, was uh, Dr. Sheng's book on battling Western imperialism, Mao, Stalin, and the United States. Uh, and if my chapters there in that book with regard to McCarthy and uh, U.S. policy in China have any merit, it is, I think, to a large degree due to the, what I was able to learn from uh, Dr. Sheng's work. Now, I don't advertise this too much, and I didn't get in contact with Dr. Sheng because given some of the controversy my own book generated, I didn't want that to spill over onto him. Where a situation, if I praise someone, then they become under, come under attack and fire. But now, 20 years later, I think it's fair. It's, now I can divulge this, uh, this information and the degree of debt to which I owe to Dr. Sheng, and one reason why uh, it was, I, I considered it a great honor and privilege to have him come and join us for this se session. Uh, Dr. Sheng is a professor of history at the University of Akron and former department chair. Before that, he served as the chair in the history department uh, at Missouri State University. His publications include Battling Western Imperialism, Mao, Stalin, and the United States, as well as many articles, including Mao's role in the Korean conflict, Mao and China's relations with the superpowers in the 1950s, and Mao, Stalin, and the formation of the anti-Japanese United Front, 1935 to 1937. As you may have gathered, Dr. Sheng has a lot to say about Chairman Mao. And one of the reasons I invited him to be part of this was to talk about the role of Mao and Chinese nationalism uh, in the 1930s and beyond as part of our understanding of the, of the context within which World War II in Asia unfolds and takes place. And so without further ado, Dr. Sheng. Thank you so much, Dr. Herman. And uh, thank you very much, Vice President Libby and uh, the Institute for bringing this panel together to talk about what we do for a living. And uh, uh, my uh, former colleagues have been focusing on uh, uh, institutional factors, major historical turning points, strategic decisions made right or wrong. And all that were fascinating. But I tried to take a different uh, uh, angle, but their uh, remarks lay nicely the background for my topic. I try to find the linkage between popular nationalism 
and the rise of Mao, the chairman of Chinese Communist Party, as China's superhero. And today, this topic seemed to be quite timely. We have the rising of popular nationalism all over the world, right? And we have quite a few strongmen characters, such as uh, uh, people would call it uh, Putinism, right? And Putin's、uh, public opinion in Russia、uh, was quite high, right? And what was the link between populism, nationalism, and great man politics? And it was not something new. I found that it was very present more than half century ago. So,、uh, what I want to do is to look at Chinese popular nationalism and how it enabled Mao to rise and become. China's supreme, unchallenged leader as long as he lived. So, scholars have already been doing a lot of argument about popular nationalism. For instance, Charles Johnson, I believe, probably was the first one in the 1960s to write a book about. Peasant nationalism, and he discovered that the secret of CCP's success was actually this popular nationalism, or、uh, he would term it as peasant nationalism. But his argument didn't go very far, and he met a lot of critics, and his critics emphasize that. Johnson ignored other major factors such as peasant economic interest or the class exploitation that made CCP popular. Not just hatred of Japanese that rallied the peasants around the CCP. By the way, nationalists. Arch enemy of the CCP, the government of China, was also very anti-Japanese, right? And why did they lose? Johnson didn't explain that. But from my perspective, both Johnson and his critics missed the point. There was nothing wrong to focus on nationalism. Because nationalism was an overarching theme in Chinese political dialogue through、uh, uh, the 20th century, facing Japanese invasion and the invaders' brutality, as we talked about the massacre in Nanjing. 
Was there an overarching theme of nationalism or patriotism in Chinese political dialogue? Of course, given the prevailing empirical evidence. After Manchuria incident of 1931, the anti-Japanese nationalism sentiment was boiling up all over China and across the line of classes. Students took to the streets, demanding more active resistance on Nanjing government part, and the business community, such as Shanghai uh, Chamber of Commerce, organized boycott against the Japanese merchandise and various uh, cultural. Notables organized Zhe Guo Hui Association for Saving China. All that become evident of rising Chinese nationalism. And when the student protest was shot by the police, it was a very bad news for Chiang Kai-shek and his government. Leading up to his own kidnap by his deputy, Marshal Tang, in 1946. So there was nothing wrong to emphasize on nationalism. But the point that I want to make was that how you define nationalism. How you understand the working of popular nationalism in Chinese context? In my view, popular nationalism is not a full-blown ideology, such as capitalism or socialism, with well-developed programs and strategies for. A set of well-defined goals. No, nationalism here only denotes a nationalist, anti-Japanese sentiment, overwhelmingly pervasive in Chinese political dialogue, widely shared by almost every Chinese at the time. Even Wang Jingwei, collaborationist. Government in Nanjing dubbed his program as "Qu Xian Zhu Guo," that's to save China by a curveball. <laughs> And so everyone in China wanted to save China. The question is, how? What are you going to do? And. As such, popular nationalism functioned much like a shell, within which different political groupings could fill in their own programs. Even within the CCP Politburo, there was a fierce debate in the beginning of the war against Japan. 
over how to deal with the crisis in 1937 in relation to the nationalist government against Japan. The majority of CCP Politburo members advocate maximum military mobilization. At the time, the CCP had only three divisions of armed force. They advocate sending all three divisions to North China Plain, fighting the Japanese in collaboration with the government troops. But Mao had a different idea. He advocated dispersed guerrilla warfare because he believed that if you put all three divisions, all your, the eggs in your basket, to crash with the Japanese, and it could be consumed very quickly. And then you left nothing, right? And the political power derived from the barrel of a gun, famous quotation from Chairman Mao. If you don't have a gun, how can you seize political power? So it was a suicide to put all three divisions out there. But also, more understood the nationalist sentiment should be taken advantage of. Therefore, he endorsed sending all three divisions go to the front to fight the Japanese, but he gives specific in, uh, instruction. Go forward 25 kilometers a day and stop one day on the way every three days. So moving through it, don't rush to consume all your guns, right? And that's very smart of him. And eventually, after the fall of Wuhan, the Japanese already reached its limit. China is and was a continental size country, right? So much that Japanese could push. After the fall of Wuhan, the Japanese uh, advancement naturally stopped. And what happened was that Mao already started to build the liberated border areas. And that was the power of policy. In appearance, he was very nationalistic, but in substance, he put revolution ahead of resistance to build strong CCP-controlled areas, at the same time 
follow the trend of nationalism. And now he fully developed his thesis of CCP military strategy. He summed up using his peasant language what was the CCP's military strategy after 1939 he called killing time. To consume the time let the nationalists deal with the Japanese. We focusing on build village foundations implementing like rent reduction instead of land confiscation okay? and in that way build popular support under the slogan of nationalism. And he called his military strategy as dispersed guerrilla warfare only in the mountainous area. So the CCP didn't do a lot of hard fighting against the Japanese as they did in building their base areas. And Johnson didn't look at that fact. Of course, in 1960s, a lot of those material were not available. By the way, back those days, you think North Korea today was quite isolated, unacceptable? It could be worse in China on the mall, right? So without sufficient uh, 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 database and uh, those former scholars' mistakes could be easily understood. And then what happened was Pearl Harbor. Now the nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek, understood Mao's strategy. He stopped actively fighting the Japanese. He put 10 divisions around Mao's headquarters in the southwest, uh, 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 in, uh, 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 northwest of China far from the Japanese. So civil war between the CCP and the GMD, the Kuomintang, actually happened during the war against Japan. Right? And uh, uh, now, at the same time, Yan An become the headquarter of the CCP during wartime, and Mao spent most of his energy building his own brand of liberated area, quote unquote. And at the time, Yan An was considered the most progressive place in China. While Chongqing, the nationalists' uh, uh, wartime capital, was full of corruption, incompetence, 
police brutality, and so on and so forth. So Mao seized opportunity to portray Yin An as the future of China. Of course, many useful Americans contributed to this myth, such as Edgar Snow, uh, Agnes Smedley, and so on and so forth. But the truth was far from those rosy pictures. You just need to read a recent book by late professor of Nanjing University, Gao Hua. How did the red sun rise in Yan'an? And one very famous or infamous case was the white lily. Uh, Huang Shivei, the author, was a useful, progressive, leftist writer. Thousands of them left major cities and went to Yan'an because of this popular belief. But he wrote an article, uh, a pamphlet, Why the Lily? He dared to expose the dark side of Yen and society. What came of him? He was jailed and eventually beheaded. Okay. So here, uh, what was the reality was far from what was portrayed. By the way, Mao was very media savvy. He cared three departments in the CCP apparatus. First, military commission, of course. Second, personnel department. Third, propaganda department. He often personalized would go through Liberation Daily's editorial, if not writing for it. And there was a secret radio connecting Mao with Moscow, where this station was located behind the bedroom of Mao. He controlled all the media outlet and access. But many contemporary observers, such as American Foreign Service in Chongqing, Mr. John Service, John Davis, uh, uh, in the 50s McCarthy era, they were targeted as un-American, and people blame who lost China, three Johns, John Service, John Davis, and John Gaishik. Right? And, and uh, uh, what they rode back to report to Washington uh, uh, headquarters 
was kind of a amazing. John David, uh, John Service, believed that the Chinese communists were just uh, nationalists. And they were popular populists, like populists in uh, earlier, uh, late nineteenth-century, uh, uh, early twentieth-century America. They were, in other words, agrarian reformers. And I quote what he wrote. The communist political program is simply democracy. This is more American than Russian in form and spirit. The misread of contemporary American observers who had the privilege to visit Yan'an for themselves along with the decimation of American military. And they were easily fooled. And that kind of a confusion about the nature of the CCP foreshadowed the confusion of later scholars such as Thomas Johnson. In a larger theoretical picture, scholars in the West have overanalyzing nationalism for decades, presumably because post-Second World War was the anti-colonial or decolonization era. So Nationalism was good because it was against imperialism and colonialism. So it goes. Yes, nationalism could inspire the fight for freedom and for domination, which was good. But it could also inspire blind hatred and xenophobia as well even ethnic cleansing. As we have seen in the Balkan conflict after the post-Cold War era, historically, nationalism and imperialism went hand in hand. What did Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain wanted to expand its empire to the new world or to consolidate the national newly emerged nation of Spain, right? And to strengthen nation state after the defeat of Moors. And the following mercantilist wars among European nation states drove each of them to grab more 
colonies so that they could survive and grow in the jungle of imperialism. So imperialism and nationalism historically were one and the same, right? And wasn't it true that the Japan's rising nationalism was behind its desire to conquer Korea and China? As my question to Director Soji alluded. And yes, by the way, Nazi really meant social nationalism. So blindly one-sided praising nationalism was historically unfounded. Now, turn to the next question. What did Chinese popular nationalism really produce in Yan'an during the war and beyond in China? I would say it produced a character charismatic regime of which the center was the Mao personality cult. Early in the 20th century, Marx Weber gave his famous lecture on politics as a vocation, in which he defined state as, I quote, the monopoly of legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. And Weber then went on to say, the state is a relation of men dominate men, a relation supported by means of legitimate, quote, i.e., considered to be legitimate violence. If state is to exist, the dominated must obey the authority claimed by the powers that be. When and why do men obey? Upon what inner justification and upon what external means does this domination rest? That's his question. Then he come to answer his own question by identifying odd types of state authority into three categories. One was the traditional authority of which the justification was, well, my father was the king, so I would be the king. The second type was Anglo-American type of legalistic authority, rested on the mer merit of presumed capacity of rules and democracy. But his emphasis was 
on the third type. He called it charismatic authority. The authority of charisma, on the other hand, was based on quote the extraordinary and personal gift of grace. So charisma, by definition used by Weber, was different from the street level today. You Google charisma, it pop up all sorts of uh, 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 stuff like a charismatic church, like someone uh, uh, have a elegant way of speaking, that's charisma. But here, Weber defined charisma differently. That was personal gift of grace, gift from God, uh, gift from heaven in Chinese context. And the absolute personal devotion and a personal confidence in revelation, heroism, or other qualities of individual leadership. That's the centerpiece of the definition, Weberlin definition of charisma. To clarify his point, Weber continues, charisma shall be understood to refer to a extraordinary quality of a person, regardless of whether this quality is actual, alleged, or presumed. Charismatic authority, hence, shall refer to a rule over men to which the governed submit because they believe in the extraordinary quality of the specific person. End of the quote. If this Weberian definition of charismatic authority ever existed in human history, Mao's regime in Yan'an during the wartime and in mainland China afterwards would be the most typical one. That's my assumption. Because of the centrality of one man in a charismatic authority, we have to understand who Mao was before we can understand how he built such a regime. There are many Mao biographies available out there. Opinions naturally varied. Are there commonalities about what personality quality Mao possessed that made him the undisputed ruler of China? Jonathan Spence, opening his short biography of Mao, stating that Mao's beginnings were commonplace. 
his education episodic, his talents unexceptional, yet he possessed a ruthless energy, a relentless energy, and a ruthless self-confidence that led him to become one of the world's most powerful rulers. We can easily understand relentless energy was about this man. He often, uh, if you look at the, uh, the documents uh, uh, initiated by him, and uh, it's often done with like 3 o'clock in the morning. He sleep, slept very little. But it was ruthless self-confidence need more exploration. Ruthless self-confidence uh, self in general or the ability to project self-confidence is one of the most important qualities a leader needs to rally and inspire followers. Mao certainly exhibited superb self-confidence in the decisions he made. Even though when science had already demonstrated that his policy was deadly wrong, he was still self-confident. Everyone against him was wrong. If that was what Jonathan Spence meant by Looseless self-confidence, he's absolutely correct. By overly self-confident, Mao often underestimate his enemies. Thus, he set goals unrealistically and apparently to be too radical in policy approach. For instance, when Chiang Kai-shek was kidnapped by his deputy in Xi'an by the end of 1936, Mao was elated. He planned to put Chiang on public trial and then execute him. In spite of the apparent danger of triggering the civil war between Nanjing and Xi'an in the face of Japanese aggression. It was Stalin interfered, sending more pilgrim, demanding Jiang being released, and Moscow's interference worked. Mao obeyed Stalin, and the CCP and the GMD Second United Front started afterwards. That made the Japanese very nervous. And but years later, Mao insisted his decision was cracked. Whereas the returned students, such as Wang Ming, trained by Moscow was wrong, including Zhou Enlai, they were too enthusiastic in cooperating with the government of China, who 
was, by the way, the running dog of American imperialist, right? And uh, uh, so another instance of Mao, Mao's ruthless overconfidence was in 1945, when Japanese was forced to surrender unconditionally, Mao planned to attack major cities such as Shanghai, Nanjing, Tianjin. And if his plan were carried out, China would have a civil war right on the heel of Sino-Japanese war. Again, Stalin interfered. Three consecutive telegrams from Stalin to Mao want him to cancel those military plans attacking Shanghai and the rest of the major cities to stop civil war. Instead, Mao should go to Chongqing to negotiate with the government under the mediation of American Hurley. By the way, Hurley went to China via Moscow, a very long detour. What did Stalin tell Hurley? Chinese communists, we had nothing to do with them. They were margarine communists. Margarine at the time, man-made butter, was very popular in Russia, apparently. So they called themselves communists. They were not really communists. And that solidified American misconception. And the United States engaged in mediation between the CCP and Kuomintang. But Mao, a few years later, joining the de-Stalinization Corps, and he listed a long laundry list about Stalin's mistake in directing Chinese revolution. He was always wrong. And Mao was always correct. One on the list was 1945. Okay. Stalin prevented CCP from waging revolution. But what was the reality? Soviet marshal occupying Manchuria flew secretly to Yan'an and to instruct the CCP, which was engaged in a down-south strategy. Soviet say, get rid of this strategy. Moving north into Manchuria, you have pile of Japanese weapons depots waiting for you. So the CCP changed the direction. Instead of moving the south, they now march into Manchuria, receive all those 
a lot better weapons than the CCP had. With the Soviet support, the CCP took over Manchuria while the Red Army was pulling out. But then American launched the largest transportation program in American military history, mobilizing tons of American resource to move hundreds of thousands of nationalists from the southwest to Manchuria, to North China and East China to take over Japanese surrender. When the CCP already occupied Manchuria with staunch support of the Red Army, when the nationalists moved in, they were quickly defeated. Imagine without the Japanese weapons and Chinese communists near Shanghai would attack Shanghai and win. It was impossibility, right? But Mao ignored the reality. Stalin was wrong, didn't allow us to take over major cities right after Japanese surrender. That's more ruthless self-confidence. One might assume that such behavior of ruthless self-confidence would disqualify Mao from leadership role, or at least his appeal to his followers would reduce. Ironically, the opposite was true. The more assertive, more claim his correctness, the more convincing his followers became. And Zhou Enlai used to be the party boss above Mao. But by the end of the Yan An period, he come down to the hill, or from the hill, and bowed to Mao, and made self-criticism, and ever since, he become one of the convincing voice to promote the Mao personality cult. I grew up with this famous song, the East is red, the sun was rising, Mao was the greatest savior of Chinese people. And, well, that was not very rational, but again, popular nationalism was not exactly na uh, 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 rational. You have a lots of irrationality built into such movement. And Mao was also very good at self-promotion. And he wasn't 
philosophically very advanced in comparison to many of his associates who were former philosopher professors at the Beijing University also, but he used them to advance his own status. Who wrote, uh, and he wrote uh, a few pamphlets that become must read for the rank and fire. And so by the end of Yan'an period, he was not only the communist chief theologian, he was the pope because of his status that he become the heir of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Stalin. And he was going to compete for that official title later on. Not just the leader of China, but the lead of a worldwide communist revolution. So it was ironic while uh, Mao was pursuing his dream to become worldwide communist leader and Americans such as uh, uh, Dean Acheson were hopeful that Mao would become the title of the East while Mao was pursuing really learning of the East, the status. Only one American observer predicted it. That's Chinese-born American ambassador at the time. And uh, it was amazing that Dean Acheson's uh, 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 hope would followed by so many scholars portraying Mao as Chinese nationalism, standing up against Soviet uh, uh, imperialism. So what did Mao charismatic regime do to China? i give you three examples. First, the Korean War. When MacArthur successfully landed in ancient North Korea clubs, Stalin really wanted Mao to send troops to rescue Kim. Mao refused. That was a 180-year flip. Before inter landing, Mao assured Kim, go ahead with your military plan to liberate the entire Korean Peninsula. Don't worry, we are behind you. You Koreans and we Chinese look alike. No one could recognize the difference. And Zhou Enlai already asked Kim to supply Korean military uniform, and the Chinese was manufacturing it. 
so that the Chinese soldiers could put on. Why did Mao do that? At the same time, he was having a so-called Eastern coming form. We talk about a、uh, uh, 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 communist the, uh, uh, organization worldwide. Coming form was formed after Second World War by Stalin to coordinate European communist countries' activities. Tito of Yugoslavia refused to join, but Mao wanted to set up. A Eastern coming form. He lobbied Stalin, and Stalin said, "Go ahead." So, when Mao moved into Zhongnan Hai, the headquarters of CCP, after 1949, in the headquarters you have a study group that involved leaders of Communist Party from Malaysia, from Fiam, and. Indochina,、yeah. because Stalin, for some reason, told Liu Shaoqi, secretly visiting Moscow in early 1949, that the center of world revolution is now shifting to the east, and the Communist Party of China should take more responsibility. Possibility. Don't worry about European affairs. We take off yet. You worry about Eastern Revolution. That was why Mao wanted to demonstrate his leadership outside of China. So he strongly support Kim's adventure. But then one. Kim's party collapse. Mao become extremely worried, and he told Stalin, word for word, Kim, Kim's military could be defeated so easily by the Americans. We were poorly trained and poorly equipped. We could be wiped out as well. That's why he did not want to send the troops. But then Stalin gave up, ordered Kim to get ready to seek refuge either in Soviet Siberia or back to Manchuria, where Kim was during the war with Japan. Then Mao had another change of heart. He reluctantly sent troops into Korea. Why? Well, he faced choice. Stalin could wash his hand easily, but Mao had to consider. Two consequences: one, you have American imperialists just cross the Yalu River from Manchuria. Second, he could forget about become the Lenin of the East. 
right? If you abandon your fellow communists in North Korea, and how are you going to claim to be the Lenin of the East? Well, here, national security concern and Mao's charismatic authority become the one and the same. The second event that I want to talk about was uh, 1958 Taiwan Street crisis. And a lot of American scholars say that's more standing up to American imperialism on the ground of preserving Chinese territorial integrity. But the new evidence suggests it was as much, if not more, anti-American as it was anti-Soviet. Mao wanted wrestle the leadership of worldwide communist movement from the Kremlin. So when Khrushchev was getting ready to visit United States, Mao wanted to make a statement. That was how Mao's charismatic leadership affected Beijing's policy decision. Of course, ultimately, it was the Chinese people who, like me, sing the song of the sun was riding. They ultimately suffer. To make himself the worldwide leader of communist revolution, he understood that China's economic development had to surpass the Soviet Union. And what did he do? Great leap forward. And you all know what was the result of this mass movement of production. It resulted in tragic failure. Thirty-some million people died of starvation. And so here, I would conclude by saying charismatic leadership was tragic. And great men could cause a lot of good, like Arthur's books demonstrate, but great men politics could also lead immense tragedy that's supported allegedly by the people who believe in popular nationalism. Thank you. Oh, I forgot. This picture was from uh, Weibo, WeChat, the most popular social media.
And a few weeks ago, I discovered that the attached story says Obama lobbied Congress to erect a small uh, statue in White Lawn, and it's recently finished. That's Michelle and uh, 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 Obama pay homage to Mao. Nice photoshopping. <laughs> Yes, talk about the face, face and, and, and and please, please don't, please, please, as you discuss this, please don't give our our current president any more ideas about last minute changes before he leaves office. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna grab the privilege of asking the first question. I want to ask you about President Xi and Mao. Um, as you know, uh, there's been a kind of I won't say rehabilitation of Mao, but there's a kind of kind of an adoption of Mao as a kind of model for President Xi. He's even beginning to look like Mao. Um, what's going on here? What's the game here? Is this merely a means of generating a sort of a vehicle for getting again Chinese nationalism behind Xi to consolidate his power? Or is there something more mysterious or even more sinister going on here? Can you, can you, can you click to flip the next slides? Oh. Okay. Uh, uh, by answering your question, look at this another Hit social media button so we can hear you. you go. Another social media posting that was a real picture okay, taken in Shaoshan on Mao's uh, uh, birthday, one two three one hundred twenty three birthday uh, last December. Uh, 26. Okay. Hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Mao's birthplace, Shaoshan. Okay. And the social media went crazy and uh, uh, transmitting this picture all over in the social media. And here they equate Mao still as the savior of China. Right. So Chinese nationalism was rising again. So was the ghost of Mao reappearing, recapturing Chinese social media. I'm not following current Chinese politics very closely because it seems to me it's so opaque you can't really tell uh, uh, fake news from the real news, right? So I try to avoid. Uh, uh, but but what I observed, for instance, uh, last summer when I went to China, I always had access to Shanghai Municipal Archives, and all of a sudden, I couldn't get in anymore. Mm. And my university colleagues say. Well, now ideology or ideological education become once again fashionable at all Chinese universities. So, yeah, Maoism was sort of coming back. Is it in, coming in many back? Yeah. In spite of everything that we know that you know, and that even Chinese scholars know about Mao's colossal failures. Yeah, even well, so. Yeah. Yeah. Now, questions from the audience, please. There, and then we'll go, we'll switch over to the other side. 
Robert Bible. Uh, back in time, Stillwell's evaluation of uh, Kumantang versus CCP, did he get it right or was he fooled as well? You mean Ma, did, did Ma get Kuomintang right? Stillwell. Of Mao and the CCP versus yeah, uh, Chang and the Kuomintang. Stillwell was heavily influenced by John Service, John Davis, and people like that. They were very frustrated with Kuomintang. So they fantasize that the CCP would be different because they represent the future of China. Did Washington buy it? No. No. But people uh, uh, from the United States government stationed in China, in uh, India, China, Burma, theater, they were very frustrated about the Kuomintang for good reason. So uh, I would uh, say uh, Charles Johnson's mistake uh, was also uh, started from a false premise. They asked a wrong question. The question they asked themselves was what did CCP do right that made them so strong immediately after the Second World War and ready poised to take over the national power? The right question they should have asked. I'm very much uh, agree with uh, 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 Professor Payne this morning that the Japanese asked themselves a wrong question. Why did we do right? Rather, what did the enemy did wrong? Right? And it was the spectacular failure of Kuomintang that enabled the CCP to take over the power after Japanese surrender. As I said, the Manchuria case, with the Soviet support, the Chinese communists were still very weak. They were easily defeated by nationalists. Here. And then we'll go, go cut back that way. May I ask you, what is the current significance of communism and international communism in Chinese politics? For example, did Ten Xiaoping have any, make any difference, or are the Chinese right that the capitalists will, uh, in the end, uh, destroy themselves? Uh, again, I don't follow the Chinese current politics very closely, but in my uh, 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 mind that uh, uh, post-Mao China was a uh, uh, authoritarian society rather than communist or socialist society. Uh, uh, but state control a market or essentially market-operated economy. In China, in China in economic field, it's unregulated capitalism. 
So when I come to Canada in 1968, I was kind of shocked because Ma, back in China, was already determined he was wrong, right? Qi Zhong San Jie, the seventh uh, 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 CCP Congress uh, 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 session, passed the resolution basically denunciated Mao's policy of cultural revolution and anti-rightist movement in the 50s. But in Toronto, you still have Canadian communist headquarter and bracketed Maoism. Of course, communism split, right, between pro-Soviet uh, 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 and pro-Beijing. And I said to my leftist colleagues, if you really want world revolution to succeed, blame Mao. He was the one ruined it. <laughs> Professor Kawashima has a question, and then we'll have time for one more over here. Yeah, thank you so much. A very uh, substantial presentation. Uh, I have one question about uh, the uh, some difference between the historical fact and the historiography yeah, that the uh, CCP created after 1949. As you know, the, the original article, Mao Zedong, uh, which uh, published, was published in 1930, was different than the version in 1940s, 50s. And, and, and you know, the uh, uh, volumes of Mao's article, Mao Zedong Xianji, in 1944, uh, that uh, in, in this volume, there are so many, many articles, but the contents was different from the original one. So CCP uh, has been creating a new history, a new historiography. So how do you evaluate such a differences between history, historiography and uh, uh, historical fact? And also your uh, concept about the Chinese uh, heroes and something, your analysis of Mother Don's leadership was uh, changed in... Uh, Historiography after 1950 or 60s, 70s by Chinese CCP? Yeah, well, Mao was a genius in manipulating historical narrative to promote his own charismatic authority. As I said, he started to write philosophical pamphlets, Shi Jian Ren, Mao Dong Ren. Then he became the theologian of the CCP. With that, he established his own Pepsi and, uh, uh, within the communist uh, 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 structure. And from there on, he kept doing the same. And he employed a whole bunch of those people under his direction. And, and, and other institutions to rewrite history according to his own image. And you have several versions. Another interesting story about this was two existence of telegram on the same day to Stalin from Mao. Okay. On October 1st, 1950. The Chinese version of this telegram from Mao to Stalin state 
we are ready to send the troops to Korea. And he listed the reasons why should it do so. And it fooled all of us, including myself, until the Soviet Russian archives opened. We discovered another telegram the same day. Okay. Mao told a very different story. We're not going. Kim was easily defeated. We can be defeated too. Various reasons why not. Then, uh, Sun Zihua and others dig into it, ask Chinese archivists to explain. Well, they discovered Mao's Chinese version did not have the stamp and meant that he drafted it, never handed it to the operator to send to Moscow. If it was, it was done so, you have a stamp, when was it sent by the minute? Okay. So, why did he draft it for altering history later? It confused all the historians, Chinese or Western historians, until Soviet archives become available. That's another way of more manipulating uh, 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 the history of historical writing. Yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service. I'd like to go back to the question of whether you, you seem to be very critical of voices that are saying that the Chinese were going to be winning in the uh, battle against Japan. Uh, Japan. And, and it was really more a problem of uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the uh, KMT forces losing. Uh, the real problem is why the, the American people didn't know that the Chinese uh, forces of Chiang Kai-shek were losing as badly as they seemed to be. And that's because there was problems here in the United States about not wanting to hear that. You talk about the American missionary movements in this country, Republican Party out of power for 20 years, things like that, that had a factor in why Americans didn't want to know what was happening in China, whether or not they even knew who Service or Vincent or any of these people um, actually were. America was in denial about the reality of, of China, and Chiang Kai-shek was very good, and his group and the China lobby here in Washington, very good at manipulating American opinion as, as effectively, perhaps, as Mao was with Chinese opinion. Uh, I think American public may not be informed, but American government was quite well informed. If you look at uh, the published uh, uh, U.S. foreign relations, uh, 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 you have John Service, uh, hundreds of wartime correspondence was collected and published in 1970s. Uh, uh, American government should know the Chinese government was not winning. It was a bad horse to bet on. Uh, but uh, the public may not know for, you know, moral reason.
But yeah, American government, I think, was definitely well informed. And uh, uh, before uh, Patrick Hurley was sent by FDR, uh, FDR sent his uh, 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 vice president Wallace to visit China, try to solve the problem there. And Mao, again, used that opportunity to please American, like he published, he made a speech, the title of which was Coalition Government, Ren Lian He was open for American idea.